The loneliness one dare not sound and would as soon surmise, as in its grave go plumbing to ascertain the size. The loneliness whose worst alarm is lest itself should see and perish from before itself for just a scrutiny. The horror not to be surveyed, but skirted in the dark, with consciousness suspended and being under lock. I fear me this is loneliness, the maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors, illuminate or seal. Hello, and welcome to Loneliness and You, the podcast in which we hope to illuminate rather than seal the experience of loneliness and the question of whether it is indeed the maker of the soul. I'm your host, Akitusima. In each episode, I have a conversation with someone who has something to say about loneliness from an academic, artistic, or indeed any other perspective. My guest today is Aaron Hames. Aaron, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Um, Okay, so I am a cultural anthropologist or closer to medical anthropology. And um, I research uh, the Japan's aging society and how the elderly use uh, medical cooperatives um, to fulfill their health needs as well as pursue social life. And um, I'm presently a a, a research assistant professor at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks, Aaron. Um, So we'll talk about that in just a bit, um, your fascinating research. Before we go into that, we always have a little starter um, by talking about Dickinson and the poem in particular on loneliness that we heard at the beginning of the podcast. So the question for you is, what does it do for you? How does it strike you? What can you do with it? If anything, what are your thoughts? So before I did anthropology, I I got a master's degree in uh, Japanese poetry. And so looking at poetry has always been a pleasure. This one made me frown. I wasn't sure what she was saying at the beginning. Um, I think you you mentioned that in in some of your earlier uh, writing that it's tough to figure out what she's trying to say at the beginning, but loneliness becomes horror in this poem. And it seems very um, grim. And kind of the, the broader sense of, of humanity being able to kind of experience lots of different emotions and different uh, you know states of mind to me always seems like a decent thing. And being lonely from time to time is is part of part of life. But um, she has a very dark dark feeling. At least that's how the poem struck me. Is that how you you made it? Yes, me too. So, you know, as you're right, you know, one reason for having this poem as the um, opener for our conversation is because I, when I first started thinking about it, also couldn't do, I couldn't do much with it. I, you know, I found it deeply enigmatic and fascinating, but um, it, it didn't off the cuff make a lot of sense to me. I mean, since then I've talked about it a whole lot with various people. And um, I, I can I now, you know, sort of um, have see much better through the help of, you know, my guests, what the poem may be about. I certainly agree with you, you know, that it is grim. It talks about loneliness as I think, you know, an, an existential condition, something that is inescapable for the lyrical self at any rate, you know, whoever that is. 
um, perhaps inescapable for humanity, something that, you know, you can't get out of, something that you lock, that locks you in. Um, so yeah, certainly something scary and alienating and dark. That's right. And you just said that um, your view on loneliness is, um, is a different one. Um, you don't see loneliness in those dark terms. Did you just say that? Yes. Um, yeah, I don't. I, in general, I think it'd be very difficult to find someone who's never felt loneliness in their life. And in the same sense that, you know, if everything goes well, then you never understand what it's like to struggle or to suffer and to, you know, understand what that actually means to feel good. And so loneliness to me has never been something that has, that would inspire such a dread. Um, and the other, the other part is that I guess coming from anthropology, that so much of who we are as individuals is based on um, our relationships we have with other people. The language I speak, um, the languages that I speak, um, the relationships that I have with other people inform how I experience the world. And so even if certain relationships end, the resonances don't. And so the kind of really closed off the idea of feeling that she has in the, in the last line to illuminate the soul or maker of the soul, its caverns and its corridors illuminate or seal. The seal part seems a bit strange to me because you're never, you might be physically or somehow not in communication with people anymore, but you're not sealed off from them because those relationships still linger within you and have changed who you are. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem as grim to me. But. Yeah. Um, so you're touching on something, you know, really important here, I think, and that is the, the conception of the self um, that is in play, you know, in Dickinson here. Um, but also, you know, sort of that is in play, um, has to be in play, um, questions about the nature of the self that come to the fore when you think about loneliness quite generally. Um, you're absolutely right. And so you might, you, you might think, I, I think that, you know, in, in Dickinson there, the self that is at play is one that isn't, you know, um, essentially connected to other people, right? So the mm -hmm. self is something that's not in itself social. It's, it's you know, sort of, it's, it's, it's something that's sort of freestanding, metaphysically real, metaphysically independent and defined, you know, in, in opposition to other people, right? Um, and there are some views um, on loneliness that actually, so, you know, Ben Majuskovic is one, and, you know, he thinks that um, loneliness is part of the human condition and he gets that, you know, sort of out of a sort of Kantian conception of the self where, you know, sort of the self is, uh, well, you know, just, just the foundation of consciousness that sort of creates itself, very loosely speaking, and it hasn't in the first instance anything to do with other people, right? But you can also think, of course, that the self can only exist in virtue of other people, right? That no other people, no self. And then, of course, loneliness turns out to be, you know, a really different thing. So I hear you saying that you're more on board with sort of the social conception of the self. Is that right? Yes, uh, probably. And this also has to do with the fact of doing a lot of research in Japan. Um, because I think there are, there are two questions. You can split them apart usefully in in my view uh, one is the kind of philosophical question of to, you know what extent is, is consciousness um you know linked to the body and how do we really um, imagine um the self in that sort of way and kind of work it logically towards you know a conclusion about is it more unitary because obviously what i think and what i feel isn't directly felt by somebody else and so there is a separation between my physical body and what's contained within here and the other 
Then there's the other part of the, the cultural perspectives um, where you have different cultures with different values on uh, human relationships and to what extent we understand ourselves as separate from other people or a self nested within the relationships we have with other people. And so in in place like Japan, um, which is very collective in its orientation, and there's certainly variation within Japan. There's some people that really are quite independent in how they think of who they are. And then there are other people that are much more relational in their perspectives. But if you talk about broad cultural trends, this place is much more relational than you have, which, which you have in the United States. And the United States is kind of a radical individualism where the self is, is contained within the body. And in Japan, it's much closer to a, a sense of who you are um, connected to and the relationships you have at work, the relationships you have in your in your family. And so in some ways, and this is, it, it might, I just might be kind of off, but the idea that being lonely in Japan is, I think, a different sort of experience um, than being lonely in, in, uh, in a different cultural context. And the sense that who you are is fundamentally connected to other people, but if those connections aren't visible or no longer like your family members have passed away and you, you no longer have those uh, close relationships, that sense of isolation is a is a real front or a little attack on a sense of self because no longer do you have the parts that that make who you are um, whole, and so it, it it can be quite difficult to hear people talk about their loneliness, um, which I do hear during research often enough. Interesting. So, do I hear you right if I say that? Okay, so in an individualist, you know, Western, US American, perhaps to some extent also European way, you know, if you feel lonely, then, you know, you are you are somehow thrown back, you know, onto yourself and the self, as it, I think does in this Dickinson poem, takes out, you know, an outside, you know, a larger than life dimension, you know, there's no, nothing but the self left, and that's what you locked into. Whereas, in a quite radically different cultural context where the self is you know much more relationally um socially constituted when you feel lonely then the self sort of goes away rather than you know becoming is that is that what you're saying or do i, get this I wouldn't quite go as far as saying goes away but is reduced mm -hmm. and that there's there's parts that are now are missing in the sense that you can't have the conversations you can't have the relationships um even if you don't talk with the other people the fact that you're no longer in this web of relationships or you don't the web is if you think of it as a web the web has a lot fewer strands and so therefore the the sense of self is is weaker in that way to make a metaphor yeah 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 that, that, that is deeply fascinating to me like you know so i just literally just 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 wrote a paper about you know loneliness and the self and i was just coming from this Western perspective. And, you know, I argued that, you know, loneliness involves a self-relation. And when, you know, the social goes away, then the self sort of, you're locked into the self and the self looms large. And now you're telling me that, you know, this is this is culturally contingent. Whereas as a good philosopher, of course, I want always to talk in universities. Um, fantastic. Well, there's a, the idea of processes and, and bookkeeping. And so like you do have a, a physical body and there's there's no way that we're gonna, I'm gonna try to make an argument that my body is somehow part of your body and your body is somehow part of mine. And so the bookkeeping is, is very clear. Um, but at the same time, you know, in the, the physical mind and the, what's in your brain is, is definitely not, you know, you're not co-constituted in the same way. But to me on, see on the, 
I come at it from the anthropological perspective is how people actually understand themselves in relation to others or not in relation to others. So Dickinson's truth about her own, you know, this, this sense of loneliness and being sealed off into, into this individual thing or the individual body makes a lot of sense within that context. The question is how to bridge this gap between is the Western idea of, of the self contained within the body something imaginary or is, you know, something in Japan being connected to other people that imaginary because we we're, we're certainly have different bodies. But then again, it's, it's how to kind of navigate that to go between philosophy and anthropology. And so it, I, I find it very, very difficult to, to resolve that. And I'm hoping you can, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we lack, that's right. I mean, no, like, you know, uh, philosophy, um, in particular, sort of the, the social strand of philosophy of mind also struggles with this question. So obviously, you know, we are somehow, you know, in our bodies, and we're in, in control of our own bodies, you know, but not in control of other person's mm -hmm. bodies. And uh, yeah, you know, we can we can somehow glimpse um you know a sense of the feelings emotions experiences that are associated with another person's body um but you know we can't have these experiences ourselves at the same time you know there is sort of a, a fairly direct connection between you and at any rate other people you're interacting with bodily and um it's a it's a huge task and and not an easy one for uh you know for for philosophers to to spell out you know what what that consists in and you know what we operate with is you know this idea of a second person perspective phenomenologists um were big on that or are big on that an eye-thou connection that's you know different from an observational perspective but also different from you know a first person point of view but it's not at all easy to you know spell that out somehow um you know we we struggle right we struggle and from a different you know perspective i think um you are talking about that same that same thing as well tell us a little bit so perhaps this is this is a, a good time to go a little bit more into your research so you know you can't cultural anthropologist um you research the experience of elderly people in japan also within medical systems i think tell us a little bit more about that what exactly are you doing there what are you researching so for my, my first big project, um, I spent two years looking at um, collectively owned uh, hospitals and clinics that have a very leftist orientation. So they're close to the Japanese Communist Party. And through the since it, the, the hospitals or the institutions are, are collectively owned, the kind of care that's provided is the members of these, you know, their medical cooperatives or something called a friendship association. The people that participate get to kind of choose the direction of the, the medical care that's being offered. Um, that's how I came into the, you know, like if, if they, the elderly want more, you know, home care services, then they have a voice to push on to the, the hospital management and together they hire more doctors to do more home care services. So I looked originally at, at care, but it found out um, really early on that they turn these hospitals and clinics into broad civic organizations and they have, they build community centers, they have mahjong clubs, they, they have luncheons, it becomes this broad-based, whatever the, the members want to do. Um, for the actual part of loneliness, I got to see a bit through the, the social activities that they would do where you see some people, their, their health is failing and they can no longer attend these things on their own. And so there's all sorts of adjustments that the, these um, cooperatives will do, but eventually people become homebound. And then uh, a, a serious disconnection with their their previous social lives ensued, 
And so the most striking examples of loneliness that I saw is when I followed um, a doctor or several doctors around on house calls. And house calls are for primarily elderly patients who cannot get to the clinic or the hospital on their own. And so the hospital comes to them. And it's not only the people that are ill and that need care um, that suffer this dislocation is kind of really radical. You know, you're, you're stuck at home. Nobody comes to visit. Nobody writes. Um, they don't use cell phones in the same way that, you know, I use a cell phone and text people all the time. And so there are two two varieties: the people, the the patients themselves, that they still have their um, they don't haven't fallen into dementia, which pushes a different problem. So you can have elderly patients that are alone, and then you also have their caregivers. And it gets to the point where someone is bedridden, uh, you don't want to leave them alone. So you stay at home at almost all times, except for maybe you know a food delivery or you know that's that's it. And nobody wants to come visit you because they're afraid of imposing and causing a burden upon you by making you do the hospitality roles. So when I would go interview these people, oftentimes I'd do an interview that my plan was an hour, hour and a half. It usually would last three hours. And then when we'd be done, the people would oftentimes, especially the caregivers, they would bring out food and then ask me to, uh, to stay and to talk. And one guy brought out a bunch of beers and said, you know, you're not a bad drunk, are you? I said, no, I'm not a bad drunk. I'm, I'm fine. And um, we sat there and had beers and talked for another several hours. And it was clear that a lot of these people were quite lonely and they were starved for some sort of human connection. And so that is what kind of got my interest in in how how people navigate the fact that a lot of these dislocations can occur and you can be really shut off. And sealed is actually perhaps quite similar to what I think a lot of these people are feeling. They're sealed in their apartments and they don't really have connections to others. Mm. So how is, if it is, how is those um, people's um, in Japan experience different from the experience uh, someone would have um, in a nursing home, you know, in the US or, or in Europe, you know, where also um, people get, you know, can't leave their homes any longer. And yes, they get, you know, the physical care they need, but, you know, they, they might feel very lonely and, and helpless and there might not be others around, you know, to have conversations with. So, you know, what's, what's the difference then? I can give you a really simple example. Um, one woman that I knew that she was in her late eighties, um, her husband had passed away maybe seven, eight months before I met her. And, um, I went to, they had an anti, um, an anti-dementia, dementia prevention group that would meet at her house once a month. And she would talk about how lonely she was. And she wanted to go to a nursing home. And a common phrase in, um, in Japanese is all under one roof. And so what is really difficult for a lot of these people that can live independently during the day is when the lights go off at night and you realize or you're, you're forced to recognize that there is no one else underneath this roof that is just you. And the sense that you no longer have a family to be there and this sense of isolation and loneliness really heightens at that particular time of the day. And so there are even, I, you know, what a dementia group home uh, person was telling me, uh, the, the one who ran the help group home, she told me that there are even institutions that allow you to go there to sleep so you can feel and recognize that you are not the only person under this roof, even though it's not your family members, that there are other people that are at night that are sleeping under the same place. And you can go back home during the day and do your independent living. But so the nursing homes in Japan are actually in, in a quite a shortage, but the loneliness that I think people feel 
you know, they come out in these little, little kind of special, special times or specific experiences that I wouldn't have necessarily expected. But when you hear about it, it's oftentimes this kind of realization that nobody's going to come to visit, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, nobody's going to come. And you are really, this, you are by yourself. No matter what you do, you are, you are alone. And this woman who, who I was explaining this, she refuses to lock her door at night. And all the other people are like, somebody's going to come in and steal your stuff. And she's like, if someone comes in, I'll make tea. It was just the, uh, the idea that she was that starved for company. And it didn't matter if it was a stranger. It didn't matter if it was just someone asleep in the next room at a nursing home. She wanted that feeling. But the nursing homes were full and she wasn't sick enough to be let in. And so the waiting list was at least two years. And so when she explained that to us, she said, I'll be dead before I get in. And um, unfortunately, she did pass away before she was allowed in. So she was locked effectively in her house. She could get out a bit, but she was um, she spent the last year of her life, you know, in a nice middle class house, a bit old and, um, you know, quite alone. Okay, I see. Yeah. Okay. A more general question. Um, so you're an anthropologist and, you know, from the little bit of anthropology, cultural anthropology that I remember from, from my student days, anthropologists describe, right? And anthropologists, at least on one view, describe. Is that, is that right? Is that what you, you know, sort of what you see yourself doing? So, uh, you know, in order to get at the other culture, all you can do, you know, is basically sort of describe um, and, you know, what you're then telling is a story, but the story doesn't, does it, does it aim to get at the reality of the other person's experience? Um, so, you know, so do, do you aim to get at, you know, the described people's loneliness um, in what you do, or are you working under the presupposition that, well, you know, sort of you are telling a story about these people, but the, pe the story about these people's loneliness is written from, you know, your own perspective, and so it can never capture theirs. You know, this is a question about anthropology, but it's also a larger question about thinking about loneliness, you know, because there is a question of whether we can ever get at another person's loneliness, really, um, by, by, you know, leaving our own experience and standpoint behind. What do you think? So we, we could spend the next seven hours talking about that question. Um, but it, um, it gets at the very heart of, of what's, what's the point of anthropology and why bother uh, in doing that? Um, I do not have the normal perspective on this. And so I will present a, a, a view that might be a bit different than other people. Um, so do not take me as a, a token of other anthropologists because I probably don't fit in. Um, so my view is ethnography, the kind of the real clear descriptions of what people's lives are, um, are is kind of the lasting contribution of any kind of um, any kind of anthropological work. It is the most valuable thing that we we have to offer. And so you can read ethnographies from 50 or 60 years ago. Oftentimes you you ignore the theoretical parts because they're outdated and the, the field has progressed and, and left it behind. But the, the lyrical, I mean, it can be lyrical descriptions of the relationships that people have. And even some of the analysis can be very, very clear. Um, right now, a lot of the, the major anthropological presses, what you see in, as far as articles are much more about how can we take this case that we see here, you know, in Japan or in Nepal or in you know western nebraska 
And what does this say about humanity in, in general? So what can we theoretically extrapolate or extract from that particular case? And then how does that, you know, what kind of patterns can we see that are, are useful for understanding cultures elsewhere? And so it's not completely particular. Um, so that's my, my, I like the ethnography more, but people tend to like the, the theory more. And so there's, yeah, I'm on the minority. We'll put it that way. As far as how to really get an experience of others, um, I think there is a, you know, there's a broad acceptance, but you know, what's in my head is in my head and what's in your head is in your head. And we can communicate, but I can't really know. Um, there's, there's a certain amount of agnosticism that's involved in this, that you are the only person who knows if you're telling me the truth or not. I mean, kind of thing. Like you can, you can say whatever you want. And I, I can only go by what you say. So the method for anthropology is participant observation that tries to get you as close as possible to what the other people are experiencing. So I, you know, I went to numerous luncheons um, while I was there. And so I sat down and I ate the food that everybody else ate. I know what it tastes like. I see how they're, they're eating, how they're talking, all that. Uh, to get a deeper perspective, I arrive at 8 a.m. with the other cooks and together I put on an apron, put on a bandana, lots of flowers, and cook with the other people. And so now I'm cooking with them. I'm listening to their conversations in the kitchen. I'm talking to them about whatever they want to talk about. So the first few times people, you know, they treat me as the, the foreign observer and they ask me questions about the United States. They ask me questions about my research, but then they get used to me. And once they get used to me, then they start having the normal conversations and I can either join or just listen. I have my little notebook. I, you know, I write as much as I can. And then I can kind of see much more clearly what they're doing. And I understand what it's like as they slowly trust me to cook food. At first, they would like, you know, just arrange the dishes, please. They wouldn't let me cook. And then eventually they let me cook. And so by by doing, by participating in the, the general affairs of, of life. And so, you know, following a, a doctor on, on house calls, following a, a, um, a social worker. Um, you know, there's a gardening club for the, the hospital, join the gardening club and garden with the people, Realize, spend some time with the men who never talk and do the gardening and spend some time with the women who talk constantly and do the same gardening. The women take care of the flower beds. The men are very interested in chopping down, you know, pruning the larger trees. It's, you can see how gender plays out by participating in both spaces. And so that tries to get you as close as possible uh, to what's going on. To give you perhaps the, the clearest example of why participant observation matters, um, back to the dementia prevention group. On paper, it's for preventing dementia. And they say they meet for two hours once a month at a certain person's house. And if you did a survey about what they do or just a, a simple question um, to the person who organizes of what do they do, they would probably tell you they play some games, they do some brain training activities, and they maybe have some tea. I get there. And I realized that first of all, two hours is not right. It's three hours. Second of all, the brain training and all that stuff takes only about 15 to 20 minutes. And they spend another two hours and 40 minutes. What do they do? They talk. They eat a lot of sweets. They drink a lot of tea. They talk about World War II and their experiences about firebombing. They talk about, you know, neighborhood affairs. All this conversation you wouldn't see if you weren't there. And maybe somebody would happen to tell you, but that would be one person's perspective. You go there 10 times, you could just see all the various conversations. You know, I get to see how somebody complains about loneliness and about their families and um, how their daughter-in-law doesn't help out at, at home very often. All these, all these complaints, all these discussions you get to see. And so participant observation gets you much closer uh, to the reality and the experience of other people, in my view.
Thank you. All right. That's a brief primer on, you know, the methods of anthropology. Uh, we've just got about a few minutes or so left, a um, few minutes. And in those minutes, I want to ask you, so you are, you know, a Westerner in um, Japan. Um, you told me that you've lived there for a long time, but, you know, um, you presumably still are an outsider. Um, it, is, is that Does that bring loneliness with it? Is that a lonely experience, or at least in time? This is a very complicated question. You could actually ask my wife about this. Um, she is constantly telling people not to treat me as a foreigner because I act too Japanese to be a foreigner here. So that's her, her view. Um, it's not necessarily being a foreigner in Japan. Um, I've lived here long enough. You speak the language, you can you can start acting culturally appropriately. And, you know, you still get kind of treated in some ways as an outsider, but other people will treat you just as a, a person. They can talk to you, communicate, you're a person. They won't necessarily make you feel foreign. What I find the most isolating aspect is that to have someone that has a similar experience of, of living in this place for quite a long time, speaking the language, you can find those people here. But if I leave Japan, I go to the United States and I live in Hong Kong now, now all of a sudden, how do I communicate these things? You know, somebody says, what's it like to live in Japan? Okay, we go to coffee once a week for the next year and I can tell you, you know, it's, it's, it's a long conversation. And, you know, go to Hong Kong, and now you have people that have a different perspective of what Japan is, and they'll ask questions about that. And then the United States in Japan, um, I had a doctor in Hong Kong ask me if I felt like I was an American in Japan, but if I went back to America, did I feel Japanese in America? And these sorts of, and he was of Malaysian, Chinese descent in Hong Kong and was always feeling somewhat out of place in Hong Kong because his language is a bit different. And you know, he was, he's, he's having some, he's struggling a little bit to try to kind of fit in. And um, how do you communicate things that are just in a sense that the experience of, of that particular part of life, it takes so long. And then that can feel isolating that you don't feel like you can get across what you want to get across in a, in a short amount of time. And I obviously I talk too much. So therefore then it, everything extends. Right. And no doubt, you know, we can't talk about everything that I'd like to talk with you about in this podcast, um, because our time is up already. Thank you, Aaron. That was wonderful. Um, a very novel experience that, you know, sort of, I just, yeah, I just learned a few things or quite a lot of things about loneliness that I've not, you know, thought about, thought about particularly loneliness in the South. Um, amazing. So thank you so much for being with us today. And yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of looking forward to seeing how your work develops. My pleasure. It was, it was good to talk to you and get some philosophical impressions or views on, on how to understand loneliness. My guest today was Aaron Haynes. Aaron is a medical anthropologist and research assistant professor in the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks for listening to Loneliness and You, the podcast on the research and experience of loneliness.